This is the story of a man who got tired of being retired. James Cagney made his film debut in 1930, and roughly 30 years later he made what he thought would be his final film. It was called One, Two, Three, and it was a comedy from Billy Wilder, the man who made the classics Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, and Sunset Boulevard, among others. The film is set in Berlin, just before the wall was built, and Cagney is a very capitalistic executive with Coca-Cola who's trying to keep his boss's daughter from running away with a young communist. Cagney never saw the finished film. He was turned off by Wilder's autocratic direction and unhappy with his performance. Wilder had ordered Cagney to play the role by shouting his dialogue at breakneck speed. Cagney was a pro, and he did what he was told, but the experience left a bad taste in his mouth, and at age 60, he left Hollywood for a quiet life divided between two farms, one on Martha's Vineyard and the other in Dutchess County, New York. The offer still came in from Hollywood, including the role of Eliza Doolittle's father in My Fair Lady and of Hyman Roth in The Godfather Part Two. Also, Harry, the role for which Art Carney would win an Oscar in Harry and Tonto, but Cagney said no to all of them. Hollywood called again in 1980, and this time Cagney said yes, taking a cameo role in one of the biggest films of the year. Then, encouraged by friends, even though he had been weakened by several strokes and other health issues, he agreed to star in a TV movie. It would be his final film appearance, and one that, in a way, was the perfect closure for a career that began on the Warner Brothers lot 50 years earlier. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. My name is David Inman. Welcome to the Potluck. If you're familiar with James Cagney, it's probably through one of his many movies. Maybe you remember him as Cody Jarrett, the psychotic mama's boy of White Heat, who dies in a flaming explosion. Or as George M. Cohan in Yankee Doodle Dandy, a role for which he won an Oscar. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle do or die. A real live nephew of my Uncle Sam, born on the 4th of July. I've got a Yankee Doodle sweetheart. She's my Yankee Doodle joy. Yankee Doodle came to London just to ride the ponies. I am that Yankee Doodle boy. Or as a gangster plugging Humphrey Bogart in The Roaring Twenties. He said you didn't belong in a setup, so I'm getting you out of it fast. I'm sorry, Eddie, but this is the way it adds up. You're still in love with that girl, and you'd do anything in the world to help her. You got more on me than any guy in this town, and I'll lay you odd that the minute you get out of here, you're going straight to the cops and spill everything you know. So I'm just going to beat you to the finish. Goodbye, Eddie, and uh, Happy New Year. 
George. See, I thought I'd yell copper, huh? But I never did that in my life and never will. If I want anything done, I do it myself. Yeah. You always was a fair guy, Eddie. I'll make a deal with you. We'll be partners again. I'll take the heat off Lloyd. I'll beat the rap some other way. Uh. Eddie! Crazy! Eddie, no! James Cagney was one of the most distinctive performers of Hollywood's golden age. He was instrumental in the evolution of the leading man from a culture dandy, often an Englishman, to a streetwise, scrappy, working-class type who was unmistakably American. Cagney himself was an embodiment of that character. He grew up on the Lower East Side of New York City, a tough neighborhood of immigrants where crime and poverty were commonplace. He worked in vaudeville as a dancer and even a female impersonator, and then on Broadway. Al Jolson bought the rights to a show that featured Cagney and the actress who would become one of his most frequent co-stars, Joan Blondell. It was called Penny Arcade. Jolson sold the rights to Warner Brothers only on the condition that Cagney and Blondell would repeat their roles in the film version of the play, which ended up being retitled Sinner's Holiday. So Cagney and Blondell went west. In Hollywood, Cagney's dance training played an integral role in his first big film, one that wasn't a musical at all. It was Public Enemy, and Cagney was a sensation as Tom Powers, a tightly wound kid from the Lower East Side who becomes a ruthless gangster during Prohibition. As Powers, Cagney barked his lines in the staccato style that would become his trademark, and he moved with a taut intensity, whether he's using his mistress's face as a grapefruit juicer or robbing a pawn shop. Yes, sir. I, uh, I was just looking at some of them pistol things in the window. Shall I show you some? Yeah. I kind of like that big one. That one? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, what do you call that? That's a 38 caliber. Oh, it's a fine... You got any more like it? Well, I've got some smaller ones. No, uh, same size. Sure. Uh, how do you load that? First, you break it. Then you stick the cartridges in the holes. Uh, could I see? Sure. That's right. Like that? Uh, yes. It'll hold six. Oh, this'll be enough. Stick them up. <laughs> Stick them up. There are very few actors with a distinctive physical presence that informs and influences their acting style. Burt Lancaster was one, a former trapeze artist. Cary Grant was another, a former acrobat. Every one of Fred Astaire's movements on screen reflected his background as a dancer. James Cagney's physicality on screen came at least partly from his old neighborhood. He explained when he was the first actor given the American Film Institute's Life Achievement Award in 1974. I'm a wreck. has had many definitions. The one I like best is 
Art is life plus. Life plus caprice. Where the simple declarative sentence becomes the line of Shakespearean poetry. Where a number of musical notes strung together become a Beethoven sonata. Where a walk done in cadence by a Freddie Astaire or Edward Vallella or Patricia Farrell becomes an exciting dance. That's art. That uh, hitching of the trousers. <laughs> I got that from a fellow who hung out on the corner of 78th Street and 1st Avenue. <laughs> I was about 12 years old and he was most interesting to me because that's all he did all day. <laughs> and when somebody would greet him, he didn't deign to say hello. He just stood back and did this. <laughs> now, now, let's face it, we are all indebted to that fella. And the names, the names, the names of my youth. Loggerhead Quinlevin, Artie Klein, Pete Leiden, Jake Brodkin, Spex DePorsa, Brother O'Mara, Picky Houlihan, who were all part of a very stimulating early environment, which produced that unmistakable touch of the gutter without which this evening might never have happened at all. After scoring in The Public Enemy, Cagney cranked out film after film for Warner Brothers, usually playing variations of the same character, a pugnacious Irishman, usually named Tommy or Eddie or Danny, who met trouble with an uppercut. He might be on the wrong side of the law at times, but he still exemplified a kind of working-class decency. If he was a bad guy, we knew that he'd been driven that way by circumstances. At Warner's, Cagney would make as many as a half-dozen films a year, movies with fast-moving plots, wise-cracking dialogue, and lots of pre-code spiciness. In the film Blonde Crazy, for instance, while Joan Blondell is in the next room taking a bath, Cagney spends a few moments fondling her undergarments and then playfully holds her bra up to his face using the cups as eye patches. That's the kind of thing that would totally disappear from Hollywood films by 1935 when a stricter production code began to be enforced. Those movies helped make Cagney's reputation, but he hated the frantic work pace and the low pay at the studio and he especially hated studio head Jack Warner. Growing up in his old neighborhood, Cagney had learned fluent Yiddish. It pops up on occasion in his early films. It also popped up in his description of Jack Warner, who he called the Schwanz. That's a Yiddish word that means... Well, you can probably guess what it means. Cagney constantly fought Warner for better pay, and he was one of the early supporters of the Screen Actors Guild, formed to ensure that actors weren't on the short end of the stick. Here's what Norman Mailer wrote about Cagney. 
Cagney was a gut fighter who was as tough as they come, and yet in nearly all the movies he made, you always had the feeling, this is a very decent guy. That's one of the most sweetest and sentimental thoughts there is in all the world, that tough guys are very decent. That's all we want. There's nothing more depressing than finding a guy as tough as nails and as mean as dirt. Off-screen, Cagney avoided the parties and pretense of Hollywood. He was known for being quiet and introspective, what his best friend Pat O'Brien would call a faraway fella. He was a voracious reader, and he wrote poetry. In 1922, Cagney had married a chorus girl, Frances Vernon, known as Willie. They stayed together until his death. It wasn't a perfect life. The couple couldn't have children, and so they adopted a boy and a girl. Cagney admitted later that he was a distant, self-absorbed father. But from all accounts, the Cagneys were a close, devoted couple. In 1936, the Cagneys bought a farm on Martha's Vineyard with a farmhouse that dated to the 1720s. He later told a reporter, I couldn't think of anything more satisfactory, more life-fulfilling, than living on a farm surrounded by salt water. If I had just six months to live, I'd spend them at the vineyard. Then in 1955, the Cagneys bought an additional farm in Stanfordville, New York, in Dutchess County. The retirement plan was complete. Cagney would divide his time between the two, farming, caring for his prize Morgan horses, tending to cattle and chickens, painting, reading, writing poetry. In the late 1960s, the Cagneys made an acquaintance that would change their lives, a local restaurant owner named Marge Zimmerman. Some people compared her to Ruth Donnelly, a character actress who played wise-cracking, no-nonsense types at Warner Brothers in the early 1930s. The Cagneys were regulars at Zimmerman's restaurant, and when it closed, she went to work for the Cagneys as cook and maid. Cagney's health was declining, and Zimmerman convinced him to see a doctor. Cagney was diagnosed with diabetes that had gone unchecked for years. The disease affected the part of his body that helped make his movements so distinctive, his legs. Zimmerman began cooking a healthier diet for Cagney, and then shortly thereafter, Cagney had a stroke. Zimmerman and her husband, a civil engineer, oversaw the construction of a swimming pool at the farm, and Cagney was encouraged to get out and exercise as much as possible. Cagney had met director Milos Foreman, Oscar winner for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, while Foreman was filming Hair in New York City in the late 1970s. Foreman would play a central role in the next step, planned by Zimmerman, for Cagney's recovery. One of the best-selling and most critically acclaimed novels of the 1970s was Ragtime by E.L. Doctorow. Set in the first decade of the 20th century, it had a cast of characters that was a combination of fictional and real-life figures like J.P. Morgan, Henry Ford, and Harry Houdini. The film's main plot revolves around Cole House Walker, a black ragtime pianist whose precious Model T is ruined by a group of racist firefighters. Walker demands restitution for his car, but slowly realizes that he will never find justice. He begins a bombing campaign aimed at firehouses, 
and is joined by a group of young black men who all refer to themselves as Colehouse Walker. Walker and his followers barricade themselves in the Pierpont Morgan Library in New York City, where the opposition to the standoff is led by Police Commissioner Rhinelander Waldo. The film's large cast included Elizabeth McGovern, Mary Steenburgen, Mandy Patinkin, Howard E. Rollins Jr., Debbie Allen, Moses Gunn, Donald O'Connor, Jeff Daniels, and Samuel L. Jackson. Also in the cast was Pat O'Brien and James Cagney as Police Commissioner Rhinelander Waldo. It didn't really matter that in real life Waldo was only in his 30s when the story took place and Cagney was 80. What mattered was that, prodded by Foreman, Zimmerman, his wife, and his doctor, and the promise of working again with O'Brien, James Cagney was making another movie. Most of Ragtime was shot in England at Shepperton Studios just outside of London. The Cagneys, the O'Briens, and the Zimmermans sailed over on the QE2. Cagney wasn't expecting a crowd at the dock, but he was dead wrong. When the ship docked, there were hundreds of fans waiting to pay him tribute. More, according to cruise line officials, than gathered for Marlon Brando or Robert Redford. Cagney and O'Brien also appeared at a command performance birthday celebration for the Queen Mother's 80th birthday. She made a special point of visiting Cagney backstage after the show, breaking protocol to do so. The two men also appeared with BBC host Michael Parkinson on his talk show, where O'Brien reminisced about meeting Cagney for the first time, and Cagney told a story about the Cagney-O'Brien film Angels with Dirty Faces, where Cagney, as a killer going to the electric chair, pretends to be terrified so younger people won't idolize him. How did you meet? In 1926 in Asbury Park, New Jersey, I was playing in a stock company, a lowly young actor, trying to get a break along the way on a donut hunt for a long time. <laughs> and there was a play that came through Asbury en route to Broadway, used to break in a lot of plays there. Years later, I broke in a play there. Or I was in a play that broke in. Let me phrase it that way. The name of this play was Women Go On Forever with Mary Boland. And I'd been told there was a young fellow in it who would... It looked like a future starter for this lad, and that I'd read things about him. And I know, I just made up my mind I wanted to meet him. And I went backstage and, you know... Of course, Jim and I, you see, Jim is a complete introvert. I'm an extrovert. I'm an Irish show-off. I like to be on all the time. <laughs> so I took a shot in the dark, hoping that I wouldn't meet this fellow. And he was just as kindly then. And as wonderful as he is today. And uh, it was 1926. And it's a friendship that's endured for 55 years. But is it true that, that you talk there about being different? One of the stories I heard was that you used to go out all night and still up on the town, and he used to go to bed early. Is that true? <laughs> sure. Does it still happen? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> no. You know, 31 and 81, there's a lot of difference, believe me. What about the, the two of you? You, you were um, all both around at that time in, in America. With the, with the, that was a gangster here, the for real, wasn't it? Do you, did you meet any real gangsters, the two of you? I had a funny thing happen. I was at a horse show up in Connecticut. 
And uh, I think I told you this, Pat, but the kid, the little red-haired kid, was freckled all over his face, came up and stood alongside of me. Didn't know him. Never saw him before. And I said, hello, son. He said, well, did you, didn't you? <laughs> I said, did I, I didn't what? He said, well, did you, didn't you? <laughs> I said, I don't know what you're talking about, son. What is it? Did you go yellow when you went to the chair that time? <laughs> Ragtime cast members were a little awed to be working with Cagney. Howard Rollins approached him gingerly and asked for advice on how to die in front of the camera. Cagney looked at him and said, Just die. Cagney himself was nervous about being in front of the camera again until it started rolling. And then, Marge Zimmerman said later, she felt like she was seeing a side of Cagney that had been hidden for years. Cagney's role in the film was short, and he got some of the movie's best reviews. He immediately started talking to Foreman's friend and fellow Czech, director Ivan Passer, about the next film he wanted to make, a movie about the last days of Western legend Bat Masterson, which he spent as a sports writer. It would be called Eagle of Broadway. Cagney was also enjoying the adulation of a new group of movie stars. John Travolta was a frequent caller, and he even visited Cagney at his farm. One evening, Cagney and Travolta stopped to pick up a bottle of wine for dinner. Cagney began talking with the clerk and said, Kid, tell this guy what you made for that dancing movie. Travolta told him what he made for doing Saturday Night Fever, and Cagney said, That's more than I made in my career. Cagney would end up making another film but not Eagle of Broadway. Instead, it was a script that began with the title Terrible Tess. It was about a retired tennis star who finds herself wrapped up in a family drama involving her granddaughter. That's right, I said her. The script was originally written as a TV movie for Katherine Hepburn, but an injury caused her to drop out and producer Robert Halmy turned to Cagney. Halmy drove to Cagney's New York farm in 1983 to talk to Cagney about the film and found him in bed recovering from a thyroid condition. Cagney had also had at least one more stroke since filming Ragtime. But he still expressed interest in the project, which would be renamed Terrible Joe Moran. Cagney's character would become a prize fighter rather than a tennis champ. Cagney asked his closest friends whether he should take the role, Ralph Bellamy argued against it, but Pat O'Brien, himself near death in a hospital, disagreed with Bellamy. Do it, Cagney, he said. It's medicine. Marge Zimmerman also got involved. She would receive an associate producer credit on the film and a nice fee. She would also be the subject of accusations in the press that she manipulated Cagney into doing the movie for her own financial gain. Producer Halmy called the charge nonsense, and Cagney did the same. But the fact remained that Cagney was 84, and just before filming started, in addition to his other ailments, he was diagnosed with dyspraxia, or loss of control over his speech muscles. Here's the film's director, Joseph Sargent. I adored him. He was such a marvelous performer, wonderful actor, and he could do anything. And here he was, in his 80s, late 80s, with three strokes, 
and he had been retired for almost 25 years, uh, except for that one stint that he had in... Uh, ragtime. 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 He had not done anything and refused to do anything. And finally, somebody, I think one of his close confidants, talked him into taking on at least one more film. And that was Terrible Joe Moran. And he agreed to do it. What we didn't know on the West Coast was that he had just had another stroke. And that I guess he felt, well, I'm not going to last much longer, so I may as well have some fun before I go. And so when I got to meet him, well, actually, CBS met him first, and they said, Joe, you've got to go up to his farm and talk to this man and tell us whether you think he's able to do this, because we can't understand a word he's saying. He's all very short and like that. You got a few words in between, but everything. So I went up there with the producer, and he was impossible to understand. Was so charming and so warm, and tears came to his eyes when, you know, when we talked about the business and and some of the nostalgia and everything. And I just absolutely fell in love with this man, and knew that somehow we had to work together. And so I invented the fiction that he was perfectly fine. His doctors assured me that he's going to come out of this momentary uh, 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 lack of speech, clarity, et cetera, that he'd be fine uh, because we, wasn't going to, we weren't going to shoot for another four weeks. And by that time, he was going to be all right. So let's go ahead with the picture, all of which was a lie. Only we were hoping that it wasn't. The film shoot took about a month, mostly in a New York City brownstone, where cops took turns carrying Cagney in his wheelchair up the steps each day. Cagney and Willie had a suite at the nearby Hotel Carlisle, and Cagney began working with a speech therapist. The supporting cast came together. Art Carney would play Troy, terrible Joe Moran's lifelong friend and sidekick. Ellen Barkin would play his estranged granddaughter. Peter Gallagher would play her boyfriend, who's in trouble because he owes money to the mob. The cast also included a cameo appearance by New York Mayor Ed Koch and well-known B-movie bad guy Lawrence Tierney. Terrible Joe Moran isn't a great movie, really, but it unquestionably has a great cast. And in a really cool touch... The movie opens with Cagney as Moran watching film of himself as a young fighter. In reality, he's watching a Cagney movie from 1932 called Winner Take All, in which he played a boxer. Considering that he spends the entire film in a wheelchair, Cagney still conveys an impressive physicality in this movie. Terrible Joe Moran is the older version of one of Cagney's working-class heroes, a role he knew how to play very well. Some reports say that because of his condition, Cagney's dialogue wasn't understandable and had to be dubbed. At least one source said the dubbing was done by Rich Little. But to me at least, it seems like it's really Cagney's voice. Here's a scene between Cagney and Joe Sirola as a mafia chief. You know, I used to do a little boxing myself. That's what you call what you guys do? 
remember a nasty little guy with a toothpick in his mouth. Some wise guys picked up a gun, and some picked up boxing gloves. Don't try sticking me with that one. We're not made from the same cloth. What do you want, huh? What'd you come here for, anyway? To have fun? What do you want to do? You want to play swing the cat? What? I came here because I don't hand over 55 grand to wise guys without something in return. What do you want? You want a receipt? <laughs> From an old friend, huh, Joey? You are no friend of mine. For Peter Gallagher, meeting Cagney was memorable for a couple of reasons. Now me, an Irish-American kid from New York, there was Jimmy Cagney, JFK, and the Pope. The door swings open to Cagney's suite, and he's sitting there in a wheelchair. He turns and looks at me and says, Black Irish, just like my father. After rehearsal, he says, Gallagher, I want you to meet my wife, Billy. But first, we gotta find her. I'm like, where do we start? He says, follow me. So I get behind the wheelchair, and I'm taking him down. He says, Billy, Billy, we're gonna find you. Gallagher, go in there and see if she's in the bedroom. So I look and go, no, Jim, nobody in here. All right, go down the hall. All right, Gallagher, I want you to go into the dining room. You see the draperies, the curtains there? Check behind the curtains. So I go in there, I pull back the curtains, and there's his wife, Billy, in a house coat. He says, Billy, I found you, Billy. And she says, yes, you did, Jim. There was no judgment. He was positively thrilled to have found her. She was positively delighted to have been found. I thought, okay, I get this. Terrible Joe Moran aired on CBS March 27, 1984. Reviews were mostly favorable, and Art Carney won an Emmy Award as Cagney's sidekick. The Cagneys and Marge Zimmerman returned to the farm in Dutchess County and lived quietly until Cagney died about two years later, on Easter Sunday, 1986. New York Archbishop Cardinal John J. O'Connor had offered the family St. Patrick's Cathedral, the largest in the city, for the funeral mass. But they refused, saying it would be too fancy for Cagney's taste. Instead, they chose St. Francis, a church in Cagney's old neighborhood. Ralph Bellamy was a pallbearer, as was Milosh Foreman, boxer Floyd Patterson, and Mikhail Baryshnikov. Cagney was buried in a cemetery near the farm, and there was a private service. Everyone had their final chance to say goodbye to the faraway fella. The Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck is written, researched, and narrated by me, David Inman. Thanks for listening. If you listen to us on iTunes, please consider subscribing to the show and also rating us. That helps other people find us. You can also find episodes on the Incredible Inman Facebook page or at IncredibleInman.com on the podcast page. See you later.